This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. I'm Ann Romer, and welcome to The Feed, York Region's longest-running radio news magazine. Coming up on the show, the NHLPA's new mental health program, the Richmond Hill Library transforms into a space for artistic expression, and media smarts for teens. But first, your health matters. Several Ontario hospitals, including Oak Valley Health's Markham Stovall Hospital here in York Region, are warning of patient surges and longer wait times, particularly in emergency departments. In fact, Markham Stovall has seen a nearly 200% increase in patient volumes over this time last year. Experts are suggesting it's due in part to respiratory illnesses like COVID, flu, and RSV. Ah, the triple threat. Here with a respiratory illnesses update is Dr. Anthony. Anthony LaDelfa, Chief of Medicine at Oak Valley Health and also an infectious diseases specialist. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ann. So earlier this week, before we get to the respiratory uh, illnesses, news came out that invasive group A strep was really wreaking havoc across the country and in Ontario. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so group A strep is a bacterial infection that can cause... Uh, a wide spectrum of disease. In most people, especially children, it can cause what we know as strep throat, which is typically a more mild infection, gets treated with a short course of antibiotics. Uh, But there are some types of group A streptococcus that can actually be quite severe and can cause this invasive infection, including a bloodstream infection, more severe lung disease, um, and in the worst cases can make people extremely ill and we have had some deaths unfortunately due to this bacteria. Um, It's different than a viral infection uh, in the sense that it does require antibiotics for treatment and we have seen some cases going back to the respiratory virus piece where after a virus infection this bacteria can take advantage so to speak of the weakened immune system fighting the virus and individuals can get what we call a secondary bacterial infection Uh, which is one of the signs to watch for if your what seems like a viral infection seems to be getting worse instead of better. And is there any way to prevent or protect against? It's a great question. All of us have streptococcus as our normal bacteria uh, in our respiratory tract and on our skin. It's very challenging to full out prevent this bacteria from becoming a colonizer on our body. However, if somebody is showing signs of infection or if somebody knows that they are showing signs of fevers, respiratory symptoms, it's more incumbent on them to try to avoid gatherings or having close contacts, especially with younger children, uh, elderly, those with immune compromise, uh, because they would be at risk of more severe infections. With invasive group A strep, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that this, it's more a, fa- a function of the bacteria itself that it can just cause more severe infection in individuals. Unfortunately, there is no real way of knowing specifically which is invasive or not until we see the type of infection that it's causing. And then we make the invasive diagnosis after the fact when we see what has been infected. And respectfully, it's almost like the perfect storm at that point, and that's that's really tough on people, on the population. I want to move to the uh, respiratory viral infections. Uh, respiratory illness is kind of sweeping the province and has really since before the holidays. Where are we at in terms of the triple threat? And that would be COVID, flu, and RSV. That's right. So 
all three viruses began to increase more dramatically in early December. They seem to have peaked closer to Christmas time, so the end of December, and now since early January, uh, the levels seem to be slightly decreasing for influenza and RSV. The COVID-19 levels actually remain fairly high. We watch the wastewater levels, uh, which is where we look for elements of the virus protein in the waste because individuals will shed some of the viral protein particles uh, in their urine and their stool. Those levels did seem to peak again around the end of December and in most regions in Ontario they are starting to come down now but that peak was very high. It was much higher than the highest peak that we saw last year and I think as individuals might see it seems like everybody was sick around that mid to end December time and that speaks to just the high transmission rates of not only COVID-19 but influenza had a very high uh, amount of community transmission based on our testing. RSV was fairly high and then some of the other viruses too, we have enterovirus, rhinovirus, the seasonal coronavirus, which is you know, colloquially the common cold, um, parainfluenza virus, human metanumovirus. There's a oh. whole list of them that can all circulate. And we don't have robust numbers because a lot of the provincial data is based off of people who get nasal swabs done. But most people with these infections don't seek medical attention per se, or they wouldn't get tested with a formal swab for some of those viruses. So it's hard to accurately capture it, but we do suspect there was quite high transmission of a number of viruses, um, and it did cause a, a large number of spread uh, to a number of people over that time. It seems like the numbers are at least peaking uh, if not coming down based on our, our trajectories now. Interesting. Three of the, the uh, problems that you mentioned, COVID, RSV, and flu, I mean, those are part of the triple threat. Each of those has a vaccine. Each of those offers a vaccination to protect. Why, are we st why have we been seeing higher numbers, even though I believe a lot of people got the flu shot before the holidays, and I'm not sure about the COVID uh, shot and RSV, but there is that layer of protection, and yet we're, we we're seeing pretty high numbers. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think the COVID-19 vaccination numbers were on the low side. Um, certainly around about 20% of individuals got the newest COVID-19 vaccination, which is the targeted against the XBB 1.5, which is one of the newer strains. And so the existing COVID-19 vaccination, which has been out since about the end of October and November, is much more targeted to the newer strains, but there was a relatively low uptake compared to the previous vaccinations. With uh, influenza and RSV, the RSV vaccine, again, is specifically available to individuals 60 plus. Um, and so there was a more limited demographic who could receive it. And so I think the amount of circulation among people who either weren't eligible for the vaccine or who didn't take some of the vaccines just allowed for a lot more of that spread. In terms of what we saw in the hospital, many people who were admitted didn't necessarily have, you know, severe respiratory disease uh, from their infection. Certainly some did, but many, in, especially frail elderly individuals, those with immune compromise, the infection just rendered them very weak, dizzy, 
other blood work abnormalities that it wasn't safe for them to be at home. So they required admission and we saw hospitalizations due to a number of manifestations of these viruses. Um, so it's a bit of a challenging piece because vaccination is mostly meant to prevent severe uh, respiratory disease, but sometimes even just getting these infections, even though your lungs may not be so severely infected, you can have a number of other abnormalities from your body just trying to fight the virus as well. And that's where we saw very large increases in our eMERGE volumes and our inpatient volumes where we, uh, the second week of January, we actually saw the highest occupancy on our internal medicine service that we've actually ever had at our hospital. And a lot of it was either directly or indirectly due to respiratory viral infections, we think. So how do you know when to seek medical help, whether it's your primary uh, physician or, and not a lot of Ontarians have a primary physician, or go to the eMERGE? How do you know when it's time to go? Yeah, so for the most part, these viral infections cause a very typical illness that most people recognize, you know, the body aches, chills, fevers. Where the issues arise is if you're unable to tolerate any food or drink and there's a concern of dehydration, uh, that's certainly a, a concern from an infection perspective. Uh, if you're feeling very weak and dizzy and there's concerns that you're you know, unable to safely walk around or there's risks of being at home, that's another factor that we've seen a lot, especially in our, again, more frail elderly population. Um, obviously, if you're very short of breath, like you're feel like your breathing is difficult, that would be a signal to seek medical attention. Again, see what your oxygen saturation is looking like because that would be, again, something that you may need extra care for if you need supplemental oxygen because of your infection. Um, otherwise, most of the manifestations, the, the fevers, um, just feeling generally unwell, so long as you're able to keep down at least some fluids, things to keep hydrated with good medications for pain relief and fever control, most of these viruses will run their course within typically a three to five day course, as long as sort of seven to 10 days on the longer end of things. Um, but it's those sort of key symptoms that might need medical attention, the shortness of breath, inability to eat or drink, uh, confusion, you know, some of those symptoms where it would be more prudent to seek medical attention. So. Dr. Ladelfa, as Chief of Medicine and Infectious Diseases Specialist, Oak Valley Health, are you concerned? I mean, these are some pretty uh, startling numbers and uh, alarming, and there's a lot of contagion. It seems that uh, that everybody, every, certainly in my small world, every person I know or every family I know has someone who has just had COVID. Are, are you concerned? Are we not paying enough attention to, to sanitary habits that we picked up during the, the pandemic? We're not masking, we're coming together in groups, and, and are we just not paying enough attention? Yeah, I think it's, it's challenging because a lot of this is reverting back now to what we, what we call the pre-pandemic days, so prior to 2020, where there was high amounts of circulation of respiratory viruses um, you know, without lockdowns and a lot of these measures. And part of what's happening now is that sort of return to that environment. It is challenging for a number of reasons to, you know, enforce any kind of strict rules with regard to uh, people gathering and, you know, how to keep strict control. It goes without saying the usual pieces about good respiratory etiquette and hand washing and avoiding 
gatherings if you are yourself feeling symptoms goes without mentioning that should help to at least limit some of the larger spread especially as we are having a lot more gatherings without masks um, and more people are getting together more frequently ideally over the years now as the COVID-19 virus is I guess more assimilated into the human population it hopefully will start to become more of a typical seasonal virus, I'd say. And it may be highly contagious, but the severity of the infection will hopefully continue to wane, which is more of a function of that immunity in the population. And we're seeing almost everyone now has what we call hybrid immunity, which is a combination of uh, antibodies you've made from fighting the virus from an infection, but also antibodies you've generated from uh, multiple vaccine doses. It seems like that combination of immunity is helping to at least reduce the amount of severe infection while the numbers may remain quite high. And at some point with enough sort of regular immunization and with, you know, some seasonal nature of infections, this will hopefully level out the numbers a little bit more and we'll get to a situation where we know that there will be higher amounts of spread during the typical late fall, early winter months, but we'll hopefully see a dramatic decrease in hospitalizations and severe infection. And then again, this is sort of akin to what we would typically call a bad flu year prior to 2020. And that's what we're thinking the virus will eventually get to. But until that time, again, it's those basic sort of tenets of good hand hygiene, good respiratory etiquette, wearing a mask if you're having symptoms and you must go out, otherwise avoiding large gatherings, uh, being unmasked. And, you know, in the case of our hospitals as well, um, we do have some COVID-19 outbreaks that have certainly challenged the hospital sort of gridlock. And to that piece as well, things like visiting family members in hospital, especially when the volumes are high, um, Obviously, we want people to have support for their loved ones, but if you yourself had a recent exposure to any kind of viral illness or you've been showing symptoms recently, uh, we know that visitor-to-patient transmission can lead to very significant outcomes in the hospital specifically, um, and an outbreak can just worsen the issues in the emergency department and, again, create that sense of extreme sort of gridlock and frustration among patients and visitors and staff members alike. Wow, a lot to unpack from this interview, and I really appreciate your great advice and your your wonderful bedside manner. It's always been terrific, Dr. Ladelfa, and thank you so much for making a house call here on the feed. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. After the break, the new mental health program for NHL players and their families. That's next on the feed. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. The National Hockey League Players Association is launching the first line program for mental health. Jim Lang with the details. Well, the National Hockey League Players Association has something really cool, new, and groundbreaking. It's called First Line Program, a first of its kind in professional sports, a program that offers training for players 
to help identify signs of mental health issues in themselves, their teammates, and those close to them. And this, to me, is a, a paradigm shift in professional sports. And to talk more about it, thrilled to be talking to Dr. Jay Harrison, a former member of the Lace longtime NHLer, and now a doctorate in performance psychology. Jay, how are you? I'm fantastic, Jim. Nice to be with you. It's a pleasure. And we forget sometimes professional athletes and hockey players that they're human beings and they have stress and anxiety and depression and bad days. And it's great to see the NHLPA stepping up and trying to help these players get through just life like the rest of us. Yeah, you're you're right on there. And, you know, sometimes the, the fan or the general you know person might forget that they're human, but sometimes they forget they're human too. Uh, and some of the expectations and the burdens that they, they carry uh, with all of the things that happen in life, the normal course and the stresses uh, of life in the 21st century, whether it be raising a family or carrying a profession, but then also the added stresses of being a professional athlete and some of those unique things that can you know, contribute to other challenges they might be experiencing can make it sometimes isolating and difficult for our players. Uh, so First Line is really about giving our, our players the tools and equipping them with the knowledge and skills and really the confidence to advocate for their own mental health, recognize the signs and symptoms of declining mental health, and empower them to, to reach out and, and find support or offer support to teammates in a peer-to-peer -peer way uh, that can enhance their support and utilization of the resources that they have available to them. Jay, I like the fact that you could reach out to the NHLPA as a player and get help. I, I even like the fact more that if you think you have a teammate going through a bad time, you can reach out and say, hey, I think this teammate really could use your, your expertise. Well, that's one of the things that we, we do realize and understand, you know, being a former player, living that life, whether it's through, you know, the American League and, and through, through the NHL, uh, we know that players rely very heavily on each other for support. Uh, like I said, it can be a very isolating experience um, and sharing your, your inner experiences, your inner feelings and what you're going through. There's a limited network of people uh, who might be receptive or be able to truly understand what that's like. So teammates are a huge resource. And, and that's why we wanted to really do this is to empower our players. We know the resources are there for players, but what we can we do to enhance uh, our players' ability to, to recognize those signs and symptoms and be uh, greater advocates for each other to change that culture around the stigma of mental health? So really, first line, we look at it as a leadership program. Uh, it's a leadership tool set for players in our league, regardless of your status within your club, uh, but to be able to recognize and be supportive of your teammates on the ice and off the ice. We look at our first-line ready players as a leadership group. We want them to be highly visible. We want them to be open and make themselves available to their teammates and, and lead as role models, having that confidence and ability to speak to their own mental health and situations um, to be you know, the best example for their teammates, which can encourage that behavior in the future for them. And, and Jay, I, I think it speaks volumes that a, a notable player, an established, well-known, successful player like Blake Wheeler would come out when first line was announced and talk about his own struggles, his own issues, and, you know, questioning, you wonder, am I the only one? So if I'm a younger teammate, a, a fringe teammate, a seventh defenseman, and I see Blake Wheeler talking up and talking very honestly about it, it empowers me to think maybe I could reach out as well. That is 100% correct. Blake is, is the tailor-made example of the player that we want to empower. He demonstrates true leadership uh, through his lived experience, um, understanding what it's like to be a player, and then being able to show the strength and courage to come forward with this story to recognize there are things I deal with. And I also can be a very high-performing uh, NHL player. Uh, he's a great role model for our players, and you know, just a, we're really honored that you know, he has the support for the program and has been advocating for it thus far. 
uh, he's a living example of what it means to be first-line ready. Speaking to Dr. Jay Harrison, former Leafs draft pick, former NHLer, about the NHL PA's first-line program. You're drafted in 01. I remember covering you when you were with the Leafs and with Carolina. Just maybe explain to the listeners how different it is to be a member of the PA and the, I guess, the systems in place to help a player now as opposed to when you were drafted. Sure. Uh, Being a part of of the PA uh, is is a very unique experience, both as the, the opportunity to work with players, but then it's a very unique benefit to being a professional athlete as a player. And sometimes that doesn't go as recognized for players during their career. And oftentimes that's understandable. There's a lot happening. They're young men. They're very successful. Uh, A lot of things are happening. Dreams are coming true by the day. Uh, Sometimes the business of the game or, you know, the collective bargaining or workplace rights or benefits of being a a union member are sometimes lost and can be difficult to communicate to players. So we're always active in trying to increase that education to our players, understand the value and benefit of being part of a union, and that special place a union holds within an athlete's career, regardless whether it's your first game or your last game, no matter how many clubs you play on, uh, the union is committed to maintaining its commitment and fidelity to your best interests. And that's why, for me, it's such a, a, an honor and a powerful vehicle to enhance the lives of NHL players is because I have a position that is solely represents uh, the needs and interests of that player individually uh, outside the scope of their club or anything. So we're always considering player first from the, from the union perspective as it comes to health and wellness. You know, Jay, I remember Rod Brindamore telling me years ago, I say, you don't know what you don't know. And I, and I really think it's true, but I, I think you as an ex-player and now your background in academics with psychology, talking to another player, you can speak a language that maybe another person in your position couldn't. Certainly it does help break down barriers and reduce some stigma and overcome uh, a lot of that isolating component of being a professional athlete. Uh, being able to connect and resonate with players' experience is a big part of developing that rapport uh, and, and creating uh, and fostering an environment of trust. Uh, but that only, only takes you so far. Uh, you need to continue to offer and bring meaningful value and connect and find novel and new ways uh, to resonate with that experience and then ultimately cultivate that. Certainly, uh, what, what you don't know, you don't know. I know sometimes people will say ignorance is bliss, and in many ways it can, and sometimes it can be uh, downright devastating. Hmm. Um, so it's finding that balance for our players and encouraging them to see mental health not only as something that is debilitating and considered in the scope of illness or diagnosis, but looking at caring for our mental health and engaging uh, and investing in our mental health as a performance-enhancing resource, just like any other physical uh, component of our game or our preparation that we use to be the best version of ourselves on the ice, we want to see mental health as a component that contributes to that as well. Well, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, how could you perform at your highest level, especially with the prof- the pressure of an NHL player every night, if mentally you're not at the same level as your physical body? Sure. That is, is, a, is a natural fit to, to recognize. If, if we were experiencing a physical injury, we would treat it accordingly. Right now, it's not to say that all physical injuries and mental health injuries are the same. There's mm-hmm. many differences. But the most important thing that we do is that we treat the conditions appropriately. We have an injured groin or an ankle. We treat that appropriately. We don't ignore it and hope it goes away while continuing going and expecting the same results. So if we can look through that lens to destigmatize, you know, mental health issues uh, and look at our ability to actually invest in, and actually regulate them and even enhance our mental fitness, um, it gives us a greater opportunity to be the best physical version of ourselves on the ice. I know you got your master's degree in clinical psychology before you retired from hockey. So were you studying in the off season, Jay? Is that how you did it? 
Uh, I actually studied through the, the entirety of, of my career. Um, oh. It was a lot of schooling to be done to get to this point. I actually was, I call myself a dual career athlete uh, through my entire career, starting in like about the second year of my professional uh, stint. You know, I started taking courses and, and exploring and exploring the game and, and found great strength and resilience in my education. I didn't see it as a distraction, despite, you know, some people may, you know, uh, the old school mindset might be, you know, considered someone as hedging their bets or, mm. uh, you know, having taken their eye off the, off the game. I actually found enormous strength and resilience uh, in being able to study. It gave me something that gave me a sense of confidence and competence, connected me to a different, you know, group of people. So I was able to leave the game at the rink uh, and bring really positive things to the rink as well. And I attribute a lot of my, my success later in my career to the fact that I had other resources in my life that were contributing to my well-being and allowing me to buffer the ups and downs. Uh, that led me all the way, um, you know, through, you know, once I had completed, um, after my, my career, I completed my clinical work uh, down at Ontario Shores in my hometown of Whitby. A um, little shout-out for everybody out there. <laughs> Hello! Uh, I went back to study, and that's what my, my research uh, portion of my career was more about understanding how getting outside the game uh, you know, doing other things beyond just being an athlete affects the psychology of professional athletes and really was able to demonstrate that athletes who do more outside of their sport actually function better psychologically. So it's a performance-enhancing quality to do things beyond just be an athlete. Oh, that's fascinating. That's amazing stuff. Uh, Jay Harrison, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk about the National Hockey League Players Association. I think it's an incredible new groundbreaking first-line program to help players deal with mental health. And this is going to help athletes for years to come long beyond their time playing in the NHL. They're going to be better for it. Thanks to people like you, Jay. It's been a long time and absolute pleasure, my friend, and keep up the great work. Thank you very much for the platform. I appreciate it, Jim. Take care. Shaliza Backus is next with a media literacy program for teenagers. The general consensus is that the young folk have the least difficulty when it comes to technology and navigating the digital world. Catherine Hill, executive director at Media Smarts, joins the feed to tell us that Gen Z actually needs some guidance too. How are you, Catherine? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, so Media Smarts is involved with Canada's first teen fact-checking network. Can you tell us what that means and how the idea came about? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, yeah, we are thrilled to be invited by MediaWise, which is a program out of the Pointer Institute in the United States, so a very prestigious program. And they started the Teen Fact-Checking Network project about five years ago. And it was such a success and, and has proved so valuable that they've been inviting other countries to join them. So Brazil, Germany, India... Spain have all started teen fact-checking networks and Canada is now joining the program as well. That's really cool. And what exactly does this mean and how will it help our youth? Well, what we know from our research, so we uh, every four to five years speak to thousands of Canadian youth about their experiences online. So the ages range from about 12 to 17. And what we know is that they're concerned about the information they're consuming and whether it's legit or not, whether it's real, how to know if something is truly real or is it fiction, is it a fake, is someone trying to fool them. 
And while we've often assumed that because young people have grown up with technology, it must be easier for them, or they must somehow know how to do this intuitively, we've discovered that that is not the case, that they're as concerned about it as all other age groups are, and that they're also feeling a little less confident about what they should be doing to be able to verify the content that they see online in particular. That's interesting that you say that, because literally that was my first thought. I was like, well, why do these kids need digital literacy training or whatever the proper term is? But I guess when you think about it, there is a lot to consider. There isn't. It's really difficult now. It's you know, especially with, and you know, everyone's talking about it. Uh, AI and the capacity to create really very realistic false imagery. So images that look absolutely like the real early days of AI. We used to be able to tell. We could say, oh, look at this. Look at this. You know, pixelated corner of the image or uh, even, you know, as recently as a year ago, it was like, well, the you know, the subtle features are not going to be quite accurate or there were famous, you know, fake photos where someone had six fingers or mm. three hands or something. That is really over. Like the, the quality of the content that's being created is, is very, almost impossible to, to distinguish without doing the extra steps to verify where it's coming from, who's created it, what is the purpose for why it was created. We, there's a skill, all kinds of skills uh, that are very easy to learn, and we just all need to practice. And that applies to all ages, so for teens as well as adults. And you know, based on the experience of the program in other countries, the teams are really excited, interested in doing this work. They get to practice their skills. They get to be on social media, which is a place a lot of them feel really comfortable and and like to have fun. And we also know teens really appreciate the opportunity to learn from each other. I think they have adults talking at them a, a lot in their lives. <laughs> Young people do. And so it is really wonderful to have someone of your age talking to you about things that interest them and explaining the process that they went through to be sure that they could trust the information. Absolutely. And you mentioned social media. I feel like, you know, there's always the other side to social media, the dark side to social media. So how are you going to integrate those types of things into this course? Can we call it a course? Well, it's a program. I mean, I guess it's a course in a way. Uh, It's certainly not, you know, for school credit or affiliated with any educational institution, but absolutely we're inviting youth to apply and uh, we'll select a core group of about 10 to start for our first pilot of the project. And we'll be giving them information, instructions, coaching, advice, support, throughout the process and what we're asking everyone to do over the next year between February and June, everyone who's in the project and the program, to do one fact check. So they'll look into one topic or one question that they want to investigate further and we'll teach them the skills for how to do that and then help coach them through creating a video that is educational but also entertaining and interesting to their peers. Good to know. And what do you feel are some of the other main issues and problems with digital media that are going to need to be addressed? 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think what is, interestingly, one of the things that's probably challenging about social media right now is that we see the, the dominant narrative or the, you know, the conversation seems to be dominated by a perception that it is all bad and, and that there isn't any value. We're hoping as well, we know that the program can help youth use social media for good. Mm-hmm. And we so passionately believe in the opportunities that technology provides us to do good, to use technology for positive social change, to be a citizen uh, online that does improve our environment, improve the world, that gives people opportunity to do things they could never do before or that they couldn't do on their own. We know that it allows young people to build community uh, where they might not be able to, either because of living rurally or remotely or not finding, you know, people with the same kinds of interests or needs that they have. So there's lots of positives to be found online, and we like to highlight those so that there isn't this discord and the divide between adults and youths about youth wanting to be online and all the adults in their lives telling them about how terrible and awful it is and how, you know, they're wasting their time <laughs> or their efforts or their, their energy because it, it can be a really valuable place for them to be. I agree. All right. So if teens and parents want some more information and if they want to apply for the program, where can they go? Please go to our website, mediasmarts.ca, and you'll find uh, right on the front page all the information that you need. There's, as I mentioned earlier, a bit of an application process just to be sure that it's a good fit. It can be any age from 13 to 18. I know in other countries there have been 13-year-olds who have started and stayed with the program now for five years. And so I think it's a really valuable opportunity, and we're going to make sure that it's lots of fun and rewarding as well. Absolutely. I mean, this is where the world is heading, so we definitely want to give our kids the right information and the right resources. So Catherine Hill, Executive Director at Media Smarts, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, art becomes an experience at the Richmond Hill Library. That story right after the break here on The Feed. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of The Feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. We are in conversation again this month with Mayor Stephen Del Duca. And if you'll allow me your honor, I'm going to serve as your Vaughn Celebrations calendar gal. Is that of okay? Course, that'd Is that be okay? Awesome. okay by you? Okay, so let's get started. Sunday, January 21st, Vaughn's second annual New Year's levy. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. We had a huge turnout last year, but we did it for the first time. Uh, it's, as you mentioned, it's Sunday, January 21st. It starts bright and early, 9.30 in the morning. It'll go until about noon. It's taking place at the venue event space, which is located at 2800 Highway 7, uh, just a little bit east of Jane Street. It's a well-known banquet hall in the, in the, in the city. There's going to be tons of activities for kids. There's going to be exciting entertainment. And the one thing everyone keeps telling me about, the free complimentary breakfast that's going to be there and available for all of our guests. Excellent. And we had almost a 1,000 people show up last year. And so um, I'm really hoping we're going to have a great crowd, a good turnout, and a really great way for, for myself and council and our community 
to kick off 2024. Everybody is welcome. And why did you restart this? You started this last year and you brought it back and, and now this is the second annual. What's the purpose of it? Well, the purpose of it from my perspective was, you know, especially in the aftermath of the tough time that we all had during COVID, when there was a real, I think, hunger on the part of just everybody to be back out, to be social, to be with one another. I think that was really important. I think in a democracy, it's also really important to give residents and citizens the chance to be together and come together. Um, you know, we do a lot of events here in the city. A lot of the events that we do do, there's a, there's a cost to enter, there's a cost of admission. Like this, it's kind of throwing the doors open, getting together as a community, celebrating the start of a new year, but also giving us a chance to sort of give a bit of a booster shot to our local democracy and help people understand we are all in this together. The next stop on your calendar, Mayor Del Duca, Monday, January 22nd, the day after the New Year's levy, the Tamil Heritage <laughs> Month and Thai Pongal celebrations. That's exciting. It is, and this is also the second year. We did this for the very first time in our city's history last year, uh, shortly after I was elected as mayor. And my message that night, a year ago, uh, which I will echo again this year, is that it, it's so important to me as I've watched Vaughn become increasingly diverse and inclusive. It's so important to make sure that all of our residents and all of the communities that we have within our city understand fully that City Hall doesn't belong to me, city government doesn't belong to me, it belongs to all of us. Our Vaughn City Hall is the people's building. And I, you know, I, we, we're doing Tamil Heritage Month in Taipongal on January 22nd in the evening. It's going to be a great celebration. I know the Tamil community is already very much looking forward to it. Here in the city of Vaughn, we've been hearing loud and clear that they were really excited we kicked this off last year. This is just another way to, to make sure people understand they're fully invested in our city. Because when, when every single individual and every single community is doing well, we're all doing well. And as your keeper of the calendar, your calendar gal, I move you now to Sunday, <laughs> February 4th, the Lunar New Year event. Yeah, this is, a, this is another one of the, you really are the calendar girl this year, <laughs> or, or this interview. This is, this is awesome. And it really does, uh, it really, January and February are very busy months in the city in terms of uh, the roster of things that we have going on. This has become an annual event. We've done it for a number of years, notwithstanding COVID. Uh, so Lunar New Year on February Sunday the 4th. Uh, in the afternoon, uh, starting, I think, at 2 o'clock or 2.30, running until about 4 o'clock at Vaughn City Hall again. This is an opportunity for every individual who celebrates Lunar New Year, and frankly, even those who don't celebrate it, but want to see more about Asian culture, want to see more about what it takes to build a city and include everybody, again, from every community, can come out and enjoy the entertainment, enjoy some refreshments, and I'm looking forward to this one. It was a great celebration last year, and I know it will be again this year. One week later, Sunday, February 11th, Winterfest. This is one of the most popular events that we have in the city every single year. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be, um, you know, it's it's going to be, again, really uh, exciting because our, whether we're talking about uh, the host sponsors that we have, like in this case it's TD and the event sponsors, Tim Hortons, along with our event staff at the city, they put on a phenomenal show, uh, incredible, in, incredible opportunities for the community to come out to be together in public. It's going to be happening at Valor Village Community Center, uh, which is in the Weston Road and Major McKenzie Drive area, 10 o'clock in the morning till 3, 3 p.m. Residents are going to be able to play giant games or do sports activities like snowshoeing or skating. 
They're going to be able to ride on the Carnival Midway, which is a really popular destination for my own daughters who try to get on that every year. <laughs> There's going to be some magic shows, some dancing, and, of course, a speech from me, the mayor. But in spite of that, I hope people will come out and celebrate <laughs> Winterfest with the community. Have and hopefully we get good weather for it. <laughs> Have you learned in your time now as mayor of Vaughan how long to make a speech and, and how to engage and then exit? <laughs> <laughs> I try to keep them as short as possible. Uh, and I can always tell if one of my daughters is in the audience, as soon as I see the first eye roll, I know it's time for me to exit. So. You are so funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move to Friday, February 16th. That's actually the end date for the 2024 Vaughn Accessibility Champion Awards nominations. This is an event that is near and dear to my heart. Yeah, it's so it's so important. We you know we've accomplished a lot, I think, in Vaughn and, and frankly elsewhere with respect to improving accessibility. But you know, and we still have so much more work to do. Um, it is important, I think, also to recognize the individuals that we have in our city who are doing so much work to pave the way for a barrier-free community. Uh, we know that these champions are people who advocate for our city to become even more accessible. Um, and uh, there, there's also many who are part of groups that are working to advance inclusivity practices uh, and so much more. So we're asking people, you know, nominate individuals for an accessibility champion award, people who we think need to be uh, supported, honored, and recognized for everything they, they do. This was established back in 2019 through the Accessibility Advisory Committee that we have, and it's an award that's presented every other year. Uh, honoring, as I mentioned, those people who go above and beyond. There are five separate categories, uh, small business, individual or group, medium business, large business, and student. And the student can apply to elementary, secondary, or post-secondary students. So I'm looking forward to this. Again, it is so important for us to recognize the women and men who make our city so extraordinary. Leading by example, as always. So I have to say, your honor, it's been my honor <laughs> to be the Vaughn <laughs> Celebrations calendar gal. And I look forward to <laughs> chatting with you next month. It will be exciting and exhilarating, as always. And I love short and sweet. And you've done a great job, as always. Thanks, Mayor <laughs> Del Duca. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity, Anne. No eye rolling. We'll see you soon. And no eye rolling on this end, that's for sure. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Take good care. Take care. Bye-bye. We go inside the Richmond Hill Library next, where art brings the community together. Glenn Perkins has that story. Libraries over time have expanded from only loaning out books to making available movie DVDs and music CDs to users. The Richmond Hill Public Library is going one step further. To tell us more, we're joined by Josh Dyer, Director of Content and Community Engagement. Josh, welcome to the feed. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. What was the thinking behind introducing dynamic exhibits to the Richmond Hill Public Library? Well, to be honest, this is this is a part of a larger plan to make the entire library experience more dynamic. Libraries are known as places to grab a book, to find a quiet place to study, but we're also places, you know, the original public library, we also have live music, we have dancing, we have food courses. And so trying to really communicate that, you know, this idea that the libraries are, are so much more. And sort of within that, you know, we looked at where we are in Richmond Hill, and there really is limited space to enjoy and appreciate public art in Richmond Hill. Our neighbors in Markham have the Varley Art Gallery, and Vaughn has the McMichael Gallery. And so this is sort of, you know, the library's effort 
of trying to play a role in exhibiting public art in Richmond Hill and making that library experience uh, you know, far more dynamic. You might be coming in to uh, pick up a book you have on hold, but why not while you're at it stop by our glass case gallery uh, and check out the exhibit there and stop by our cafe and grab a coffee and a bite to eat, making it so that there's People know there's much more to do here than just sort of, you know, what we're known for, which is obviously our books, which we're proud to have and will always continue to have, but the libraries have so much more to offer. How unique approach is this? It's new to Richmond Hill, but other libraries uh, definitely are, are involved in this. I was uh, actually just uh, visiting a library down in, in Cambridge a couple months ago. They have a fantastic sort of gallery experience there. So it's new to Richmond Hill, but I wouldn't say public art and libraries being something that's totally new, but I think... Uh, definitely much needed here in Richmond Hill. Let's talk about the exhibits, beginning with Braver Than Loneliness. What's the story behind this? So this is part of uh, the Design TO Festival, and so we're proud to be the only exhibitor of a a Design TO exhibit in Richmond Hill. And so Design TO is a a festival that happens uh, every year, uh, mostly in in the greater Toronto area. They have artists, and designers and architects exhibit or display these installations in, in various sort of public spaces. We're like, we're a library, we're a public space, you can exhibit your work right here. And they thought that was a great idea. And so the exhibit that we'll have is called Braver Than Loneliness. And the really amazing thing about this is this exhibit explores the alarming prevalence of loneliness and isolation that we're seeing in our society today. And, you know, it offers sort of, uh, it, A, you know, look at the challenges that individuals have, but also offers coping mechanisms that people can use to counter loneliness, but also really, more importantly, draws attention to what is, you know, becoming an epidemic in society today. Coming out of the pandemic, we know that there are still some people affected by the isolation that that caused. So this is definitely an exhibit that many people will be able to relate to. Exactly. That's what we're hoping. And, you know, it's a great time of year. Already in January at the library, we tend to do a focus on mental health coming out of the holidays, January, with the cold here in Canada, with the shorter days, the the, the less sunny days. It is something that, that people really struggle with. And so part of us playing a role in bringing awareness to that and offering some coping mechanisms for people to, to utilize. And how long will this exhibit be on display? Ribbon Loneliness is uh, January 19th to the 31st. So it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's fairly short, so don't miss, it, uh, don't miss it while it's here. And the next dynamic exhibit is Hair Today, Gone Tomorrow. I like that title. Tell me about the artist. Uh, yes, Ehiko Ode is a Nigerian-Canadian artist. Hair Today, Gone Tomorrow uh, explores hair as a, as a powerful medium of self-expression, but also a symbol of memory and healing in, in, in black communities. Uh, it's funny, I was actually just down there looking at the exhibit myself, and a colleague came by and, and said, you know, I, I don't uh, recognize a lot of these products, because a part of the exhibit is sort of also has this retro element where it has all of these black hair products from the 70s and, and 80s. And, and myself being a, a Jamaican-Canadian, a black Canadian, I forgot, like, I mean, I, I recognize all of these products. They're all things that were staples in my household growing up, like curl activators and Dax pomade and stuff that, that a lot of black folks in our community will probably also sort of uh, have memories of. And you just touched on it, but this exhibit is aligned with Black History Month, and that's important for the community, isn't it? For sure. That exhibit actually uh, launched in, in December, uh, but it will continue through the end of February. It is a part of our, our, our Black History Month programming. 
So, you know, we're hoping to play a part in sort of, you know, educating the public about black history and about the accomplishments of black Canadians have had. Uh, and so it's just one part of, uh, of uh, sort of various programs and activities we'll have at the Library for Black History Month in February. What was it about these two installations that made them compatible with the Richmond Hill Public Library? Uh, well, like I mentioned, uh, you know, the Braver Than Loneliness is, is already exploring an issue that, that we have recognized uh, is becoming a, a larger issue, a problem in society. And it's already something that every January we sort of focus on at the library. So January is generally mental health is sort of a focus that we have. We tend to have sort of themes that we look at. And same and same with uh, with Hair Today, Gone Tomorrow, it being a part of our Black History Month program for February. So they both align extremely well with our values here, but also some of the work that, that we've been doing. Josh, if listeners would like to check out the dynamic exhibits for themselves, how can they do that? Well, they'll have to come to our central branch of the Richmond Hill Public Library. It's at 1 Atkinson Street, which is really just the corner of Young and Major Mac here in Richmond Hill. We are open Monday through Sunday. Monday through Thursday, we're open 9.30 to 9. Fridays, we're open 9.30 to 6. Saturdays, 10 to 5. And Sundays, 12 to 5. So at any time the library is open, folks can come in and explore those exhibits. Josh Dwyer, Director of Content and Community Engagement at the Richmond Hill Public Library. Thank you for joining us on The Feed. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. If you missed any part of The Feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.